The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. We'll just say good morning again. So, um, I've been thinking, when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about this morning, what really came to mind was that I wanted to discuss joy in spiritual practice. And then, and then life happened. <laughs> and so now I'm going to talk about that instead. And hopefully I'm not going to leave joy behind as we do that. So one of the things that I keep on my desk is this little booklet called um, Clarity and Calm for Busy People. And it's, uh, it's just a little, it's a tiny little pamphlet, really, by uh, Ajahn Suchito, who, uh, who has some lovely things to say. So when I'm feeling particularly busy, I will pick this up and just open it up and say, okay, so this is on gather thinking. It's a second, so, so he has a, a list of things that you might do when you're feeling very busy and the need for calm has escaped you. And one of those things has to do with gathering thinking. So I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs, and then I want to talk about it. So a lot of the time we're thinking, we're thinking, and that isn't always good or helpful. Thinking, unlike thoughtful attention, is about constructing a future, a past, a person, a self, It's often about creating an alternative to the direct experience of here and now. And there's stress in that. So what we do for clarity and calm is to come into the present and rest in that. It's as if our thinking is a show and we have sat back and watched. This position of watchful awareness allows the system to regenerate or refresh. And also to get perspective on what and how the mind is creating. What and how the mind is creating. It takes you off the treadmill of thinking and lightens the weight on the mind. Then you can employ thoughtful attention rather than getting lost in thinking. A memo to draw the mind out of runaway thinking is the future is imagined the past is a memory, and what other people and you are is a changeable notion. Although these impressions quickly proliferate, there is no stable reality in any thought, which is why involvement with thought gets stressful. So tune into the thinking as a flow. Soften your attention around the topics and your reactions to them, and instead feel the movement of thinking. Racing, circling, sparkling, grinding, whatever. Let go of the topic and tune in to the flow. Unhook from the need to arrive at a conclusion. Right now there is no conclusion, because it's still happening, right? (laughs) Also, Put aside the irritation with thinking and the wish that it stop. Feel the energy of thinking and settle it on the breathing. It's like riding 
a horse, or surfing a wave, keep the breath energy and the thought energy in mind, letting them meet and move together. Now, so, so those are the, the two paragraphs. What became clear to me as I read them is the very act of reading, reading them and getting my head out of the long list of things I had to do, just that, just that, lifted my spirits and, and took the weight off my mind, even though the thoughts all came back. I still have my long list of things I have to get done today, what was not going correctly in my mind. <laughs> all of that was still present. But the very act of just saying, oh, and just noticing the energy of those thoughts caused everything to shift. Not change, the conditions did not change, but it all shifted, shifted. So particularly when we're at our busiest, our most fervent thoughts of not being up to the task arise. I can't do it. I just can't do it. Why did I take this on? What was I thinking? Where did I get the idea that I could do all of these things today? Or we start defending ourselves. I'm just trying to do this for you. (laughs) I'm just trying to do this for my family. I'm just trying to do this because it's important to the country. I have a, a neighbor who's a political activist, and the woman never stops because it's so important to the extent that I worry about her health. You know? So we all do this. We have the triggers in our minds that get us to, to rush and continue to do everything. Now, if there's anyone in the room that is feeling particularly calm today and finds this agitating, just relax. It will all be okay. So one of the things that happens is we begin accusing. When we're really busy, we accuse ourselves, not being good enough, not being able enough. We accuse those around us. Why aren't you happening? Why aren't you helping? You can see how busy I am. How can you be sitting there just reading when I'm running around doing the laundry and whatever, you know? Or you notice the person at the next desk that's just sitting there and you want to say, come on, (laughs) because we want to engage everybody else in this rush of stress that we've enveloped. Not intentionally, of course. It's all part of this kind of defensive way of living. So, so we get the idea that we're not doing our part or they're not doing their part or I should have taken care of this yesterday instead of what I did. I should have done all of these thoughts that have nothing to do with the list of things that have to happen, I might point out. These are all extra, extra thinking the other thing that happens is we say, until I figure out how I'm, how I'm all get, going to get all of this done, nothing is going to go right. right? So we want to resolve it. We want to, I'm, if I have the right list and the right order, I can be perfectly efficient. Or I'm going to enlist these other peoples and this is how I'm going to do it. And then we add another layer of complexity to all the things we need to do, which is 
I'm going to create the perfect solution to this so that forevermore I'm not going to be like this, right? We're going to suddenly improve and be better people and more organized and all of this will go away. I don't know why we think that. To quote Suchito, the future is the imagined, the past is memory, and what other people and you are is a changeable notion. Let go of the need to say, oh, this is how I am. I never get things done on time. I'm always late. She's always late. He's always doing more than he needs. All of these things are efforts to control what seems out of control. If I label it, I have a solution. Maybe not. Maybe not. For a moment, just consider how the mind works. Not how your specific mind works, but how the physical mind works, the brain works. When we're under stress, stress hormones are released in the brain (laughs) and things happen. The body does things. The body immediately feels like it has to react to what's happening and it sends up defensive modes or I'm going to run away from this mode or I have to rush into this mode. But these are not decisions that we make so much as they are physiological responses to stress. So the secret is not to change that, but to live with that and to live well with that and to say, oh, this is what's happening because it is what's happening. It's not unreal. The thoughts are pretty ephemeral and unreal, but the reaction, the physical reaction of your body is happening. It doesn't do any good to pretend that it's not. It's just one more layer of stress. So what we do is we enter the body. We enter the body. We say, okay, here I am in this body. Notice what's happening with the body. Not the overall condition, but my fingers are tingling. My jaw is clenched. My forehead is wrinkled. My shoulders are up. How do I know? I deliberately try to lower them and see what happens. Oh, They really went down. That's how I know. Not because I'm not conscious when I'm like this. When I've got my shoulders up and I'm really worrying about something, I'm not conscious of that unless I look at it. And then I can say, whoa, I can let those down. Huh, how about that? Notice jitteriness. Notice irritation. Know that it's there. You don't have to chase it away. This tendency to want to chase it away just adds to the confusion. Notice, you know, today I'm really sad. I'm just sad. What does that feel like? It's not an opinion. There's a sinking. There's a sinking. Notice that. Notice that I'm in here in this body. Believe your body. Know what it's telling you. But know what it's telling you. Before you run away, know that there's a feeling of "Ah," horror or exasperation 
Oh, exasperation. Okay, I can feel that feeling. I know that that's here. And the mind is, has a whole series of things that it's doing. And then I go back to the not being afraid of that feeling of, of rejecting, that, the bodily feeling of, I don't want this. I can go back and forth between those, those realizations, that awareness. I can, I can notice, okay, things are pretty jittery today, pretty... Pretty agitated day. Okay, I'm agitated today. End of story. You don't have to add the story. Find your breath. One of the big surprises in my life is always when I notice that I'm agitated and when I consciously feel my breath, I notice that whatever form that agitation is taking, it isn't in my breathing, unless I'm really frightened. Then my breathing is kind of rapid. But usually when I'm worrying about something, the breathing isn't going... (sighs) The breathing is just breathing. And then I can remember the thinking is just thinking. The breathing is just breathing. The thinking is just thinking. When you're sure you're in the room, in your body, then watch those thoughts. See the energy of the thoughts. Are they skitterish? This thought, that thought, this thought, that thought. Are they blinking in and out? Does there seem to be a story? There's a a flow to those thoughts? Is there a direction those thoughts, thoughts are taking? What's the energy of it? Does it seem really high or really low? Is there anger in the thoughts? Is there hurt in the thoughts? So not so much the content, not so much the content as the energy of the thoughts. The more that you can connect with the sensations of your body in the room, the further you are from being carried away by a chain of related or unrelated thoughts. And watching that seesaw back and forth between being lost in your thoughts and being in your body, whether it's in the breathing or in the tingling in your fingers, whatever that feeling is, that seesaw back and forth tells you something. It allows you to be here in the here and now and not creating an alternative universe. Well, this is what would be true if I had my way kind of universe. Notice the tendency to return to how can I be doing this? How can he be doing this? How can she be saying that? Notice the coming back See the tug and release, back and forth. Don't try to change it. Just notice, clinch, unclench, clinch, unclench. Notice that your lips are stretched with glee. This isn't only about noticing when you're upset. Sometimes you're agitated because you're very excited and happy. 
And then your thoughts start proliferating off into other times when you are happy or how can I retain this? And when I'm going to, I'm going to do this again. So next week I'm going to do this again. Totally missing the delight of now. Totally letting go of what's actually happening now that is delightful because I'm busy planning when I'm going to do it next. Right? Okay, so one of the phrases in that was thoughtful attention. What is thoughtful attention? How do we tell thoughtful attention from thinking? What's the difference? So a friend uh, recently told me about her first experience on a one-day retreat. So she's been meditating for some time, for a couple of years, but she'd never done anything <clears throat> on an extended basis, not for very long. So she did this day-long mindfulness retreat. And sometime during the day, she became, she became very calm. And she was overwhelmed with a whole series of memories, floods of memories, one thing after another. It wasn't a story that was coming up. It was this happened, and this happened, and this happened. It's not this happened, and then this happened. So she was just watching these thoughts that just came flooding from her childhood. So this woman is uh, in her 80s, and all of these, she was thinking, she, she recalled, not thinking, she recalled when uh, someone that she had spent the summer with taught her to fish and how to look for worms, and all of the things that have to do with showing somebody how to put the worm on the hook and how to, how to cast. So there was just a whole series of memories, memories about fishing, memories about being held. And what she was doing was just watching it. And she noticed when she was feeling a sense of loss, and she noticed when she was feeling a sense of joy and appreciation and gratitude. But she was just watching it come and go. She wasn't trying to build on it. Later, she reflected on it a lot. She, she reflected on what it brought up for her and the fact that she carries a, a story of an unhappy childhood because her mother largely ignored her. It sent her off to boarding school at a young age. But there were people in her life who did hold her, who did experience her, who did watch her and like her and and play with her. And she had sort of lost that because the story of her childhood was about her mother. Through thoughtful attention, this just watching the thoughts, she discovered something that had not been accessible to her. She simply wasn't looking there. So when they arose, it was surprising. Oh, oh. It's not that she'd lost track of these people, by the way. They're in her life. It's just that that memory that arose that just flashed in, she was able to just see it and not connect it to a lot of other things. Awareness that does not direct or fall into the thoughts is thoughtful attention. It's being aware of the thoughts 
and the emotions that are carried with them that is thoughtful attention. It's different than remembering exactly how to put a worm on a hook. It's the image of, whoa, someone did that, right? Um, So it is an awareness that just sees. It doesn't become wrapped up in the thinking. So the other idea is that there is no stable reality in thoughts. You know, most of us at this point will say, well, no, I don't believe all my thoughts. No, no. But, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good thinker. And uh, my, my thoughts have real value. Right? But they are, in fact, just thoughts. Sometimes we string those thoughts together creatively, in ideas, in solving problems. But a lot of thinking is just chatter. It's just a thought. And the question is, how much responsibility do we take for every thought that arises? And what do we do with those thoughts when they arrive? So I might say, for example, that person was very rude. Whatever they did, I've decided that person was really rude, and I am disgusted by that rudeness. I'm sitting here disgusted by that rudeness. When in fact, the same behavior, depending on the conditions, the culture, might be completely appropriate behavior. So what I'm really commenting on is in fact not the behavior, but my thinking about that behavior, my reaction to that behavior. It's really about me. That person is very rude. No. No, you are experiencing as rudeness what this person did. When this person just did something, and you have no idea why they did that or what they were thinking. And then as you begin investing in this idea of that person's rudeness, you can build up a great deal of self-righteousness and insult from what may or may not have been a totally innocent behavior. This is the role of the thinking that, that has to do with our reaction to what we see. And when we can see, oh, I'm just reacting, I'm reacting, then we can settle back and just watch. Oh, that's a reaction. Oh. And then we can say, what am I feeling? Well, I'm feeling, you know, so when, when I'm feeling particularly insecure, which happens, I can experience someone's disregard as really painful. At other times, when I really want to be alone, I experience someone's disregard with great gratitude. This is all about watching the reaction that I am having to what's happening. So noticing, oh, this is arising out of insecurity, This person is just not paying attention to me at this moment. (laughs) Oh, their attention is probably, you know, on how do you fish? And it isn't even about me. We create a lot of what happens in our thinking. So just watching the thinking builds up our store of understanding about how thinking works. And it allows us to settle into the body and say, what am I feeling in this moment? What is going on in this moment? 
how does this match with my breath? Does it disappear? Does it reappear? How quickly does it reappear, this this thinking, these thoughts? What happens to you when you say, this is just a thought? What happens to you? This is just a thought. So, So let's do a little experiment. So right now, I want you to think about uh, the yellow shoe on your left foot. The yellow shoe on your left foot. There's a yellow shoe on your left foot. I've just told you that. You know there's a yellow shoe on your left foot. Are you all thinking about the yellow shoe on your left foot? Yeah, I'll think about the the yellow shoe on your... Okay, so there are other thoughts I'm sure they're thinking, like, where is she going with this? You know, yellow is a pretty inappropriate color for a shoe... A yellow shoe is just going to get dirty. Is your yellow bright or is your yellow smudged? Do you believe that the shoe is yellow? Are you thinking, I don't even have a shoe, I'm barefoot? (laughs) All of this is just thinking. And some of the thoughts are bright and some of the thoughts are dull, just like that yellow color. And they are as ephemeral. They are not connected in any way to reality. I don't see any yellow shoes. And in the end, you didn't really believe you had a yellow shoe. You were perhaps trying to convince yourself of an image of a yellow shoe. But this, this is the thing about thoughts. They are not the thing. Like a photograph, they are a representation of the thing. But we have a tendency to imbue it with reality. We we try to make it all mean something. One of the things that is useful is to notice when we have something like the yellow shoe, whether our tendency is to go, I just don't want to go there, or, oh, well, that's interesting. I'm curious about that. Is that tendency related to the conditions. So I'm thinking about a concert I went to last week. And the, the, uh, the St. Lawrence String Quartet actually gave a series of free concerts at Stanford last week. And I got to go to three of them. I missed the first one before I found out they were happening. And the second and the third one were absolutely delightful. And one of the things that happened during those those concerts, is the lead violinist named Jeff, I've forgotten his last name, first violin in the string quartet, has an amazing sense of humor and lots of charisma. And he would speak about the music. And when he plays, his feet go up into the air and he can't sit still. He has an enthusiasm for the music that is infectious. I would describe him as an infectious person. Just And everybody was going, oh, I like that, I like that. And I was watching my mind say, I like that, I like that. And I had to remind myself, breathe and notice the delight in this moment. Now, whatever you think of string quartet music, this was delightful. It just, there, it was peaking something in me that I enjoyed. And at least during the, those 
times I was able to notice that I was delighted. How wonderful, how wonderful to notice you're delighted. I felt so enriched by this person who had the entire audience with him. Now, the third concert I went to was Saturday night. He introduced people, but the the St. Lawrence String Quartet did not play. And the first quartet that played a Haydn piece, uh, which was uh, very slow, very solemn, they were very subdued as a quartet, and the whole energy in the room was totally different. And I noticed the energy in me was different. And I could feel that different energy. So it isn't the music per se or the place per se. You have to notice what's actually happening then under those conditions in that place. So even though the music was beautiful and I was glad I was there, it was a different experience. This is what's happening now. Not all concerts are the same. Not all meditations are the same. Not every day is the same. Not every moment is the same. This is what's happening now. And just allow that to be true. It doesn't have to be different than that. It won't be anyway. It will just be as it is. And what we're dealing with is whether I think it's rude or not, which is my reaction to the moment, right? It's just my reaction to what is happening. So notice what is happening so that we free ourselves from the stress of being responsible for everything, (laughs) fixing the conditions of the world. So for the last week, I have been plagued with an itch on my left shoulder blade. It has no apparent cause, but I can tell you exactly where it is. It is not itching at the moment, I might add. But when I was preparing this talk last night, I thought, oh, this is a great example. And as I was sitting there, the itch, I've I've started ignoring it because it isn't actually related to anything. So I noticed that there was an energy trembling in the, you know, a nerve trembling in the shoulder. It's kind of feeling, you know, just... Oh, okay, so there's some kind of nerve sensitivity there. Now the whole idea of itch changes when I notice that it's it's not itching the usual way. It's just kind of tingling there. And the mind was interpreting it as an itch. It's an itch. Itch means scratch, automatic response. And maybe that's why I'm not feeling it today because, you know, I have a totally different attitude about this thing that is just a tingling in my shoulder. Now I realize it's much more likely to have to do with my exercise regimen. And it's just showing up in that spot, which my mind was interpreting as an itch. A totally incapacitating itch that I couldn't reach. Of course, that was key to the whole thing. Couldn't reach. Sometimes when we pay close attention, close attention to what's actually happening in the body, we can see something that we miss. So part of this, I can't reach the itch, I can't fix what's there, had to do with other things in my life that feel like I can't make them happen. 
I can't make all of this be perfect. And watching the mind wanting to make things be perfect freed me from the need to make it be perfect. Oh, that's what's happening. I get it. I get it. It lifts the weight of responsibility for all of the thoughts and the meaning of those thoughts. I gather myself in. I pull myself into the body. I notice what's going on in the body. I see the thoughts. I watch the seesaw go back and forth. Like watching a tennis ball. It's a tennis game, and the tennis ball is going over the net and back and over the net and back. And the thoughts have no more reality than that imaginary tennis ball. They are not real. So where is the power in the thinking? Why are we so entrained? What is it about thinking that keeps us so involved in the process of thinking? Or not noticing the thinking, which is the other side of it. It's kind of a a paradox. We're either forcing an answer or just allowing the mind to go off at random. It's, It's going somewhere far away. What is the engine for that entrainment? The engine is fed by the fuel of emotions. When we're lost in fantasy, there is something that is better than where we are. It's better over there. There's, I know it's better over there. I'm thinking about that. When I become my ideal self, I will never be this way again. When I get my house totally cleaned and organized and all of that clutter gotten rid of, then when, when family comes, I won't have to move stuff around. Whatever it is that gets into that fantasy realm, it's really about trying to change what's happening now. And usually, usually, what's happening now is not so bad. Except that we've piled on all these other requirements, which is not only has to be good, it has to look good. So it is fueled by our feelings, and the trick is to know what we're actually feeling. To know what we're actually feeling. And the, the, the way to know that is to check in with the body. When I'm really agitated, I can feel that agitation in my fingertips. And that reminds me, because I now know that, that agitation shows up in my fingertips. When, I f- when I'm feeling out of control, I check in with my fingertips. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of tingling there. And it probably has something to do with blood pressure. I don't know. <laughs> but I can feel that tingling in my fingertips. And I know, okay, those fingers, those fingers think they can make things better. <laughs> and I take a deep breath. And I arrive in this moment, in this room, and I say to myself, okay, I'm agitated. This is agitation, and this is what it feels like. 
and giving myself a few breaths, then I can move forward into what, it, what do I need to do next? But I'm not rushing into it like it's life or death because of the thinking I have, which has to do with changing the moment. When, you are, when you're with someone who is uh, doing something you don't like, right? they're doing something that's irritating to you, it's very important to notice whether the irritation is them or you, whether the irritation is present in you. And it doesn't take much then to activate that, how can you be that way feeling? And we're unsure whether it's how can I be that way or how can you be that way. And the, the reaction doesn't really care. The reaction that comes from the brain is, this is discomfort, I have to fix the discomfort. When you notice that you are on a trigger mood, then it becomes easier to watch somebody continuing doing something that's irritating. Because then you know that you're just, you're reacting to your own irritation. And it keeps from building up ill will to replace the irritation. That makes sense? That's part of what I referred to earlier as the accusing mode, when we start accusing ourselves or accusing someone else. And it doesn't matter whether it's someone else in the room or we're just in the room with ourselves, we can still do this. We can say, oh, there you go, doing that thing again. I'll never, I'll never be able to fix that. I, I, how can I... And, you, and you're, you're, you're speechless with irritation. Notice that the thinking is trying to fix what's true. And just sit back and say, oh, this is how it is today. This is how it is today. It doesn't mean that it will be this way tomorrow. I went through a period in February where I had a lot of physical things that went wrong. And I was going um, once a week to see my doctor, twice a week to see the diet people I was seeing, twice a week for physical therapy for a destroyed knee, twice a week for physical therapy for uh, some hand surgery that I had done. I was doing nothing but going to the doctor or some health-related thing. I mean, by the time you go to all those appointments and drive around, you know, the Bay Area trying to get to those appointments, you can become quite despondent. You can become... I I imagined myself, I said, okay, this is the way, this is the downward trend at the end of my life. I'm over 70, this is what's going to happen, the rest of my life is going to be... And the end of my life was going to happen soon. And then I realized this is just the stress of trying to do all these things. This is the stress of living with the discomfort of all these misfunctioning pieces of my body. This is the stress that is just stress. It doesn't mean anything. I'm doing all these things so that 
I am not on the downward spiral to the end of my life for the next 30 years being uh, an invalid or whatever I had imagined. So it's really hard to, to see what is really true when there's a lot of energy in the thinking. So noticing the energy in the thinking allows us to gather the thinking together and say, ah, it's just thinking, just thinking. It's just thinking. Practice it. Practice saying, this is what's happening now. Whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable. This, just this. Come into the moment. Come into the moment. So I'm going to read that one more time. A lot of the time we're thinking, and that isn't always good or helpful. Thinking, unlike thoughtful attention, is about constructing a future, a past, another person, or oneself. It's often about creating an alternative to the direct experience of the here and now. And there's stress in that. So what we do for clarity and calm is to come into the present and rest in that. Rest in the present. It's as if our thinking is a show that we can sit back and watch. Watch our thinking. This position of watchful awareness allows the system to regenerate or refresh. You know, it's like rebooting. When nothing else is working on that computer, just a reboot will sometimes take care of it. Why? Because it's all twisted up in all of its instructions, and they just need to be reset. It's a mystery. So is life. It allows the system to regenerate or refresh and also to get perspective on what and how the mind is creating. What and how the mind is creating. It takes you off the treadmill of thinking and lightens the weight in your mind. Then you can employ thoughtful attention rather than getting lost in thinking. A memo to drive a mind out of runaway thinking is the future is the imagined, the past is a memory, and what other people and you are, is a changeable notion. Although these impressions quickly proliferate, there is no stable reality in any thought, which is why involvement with thought gets stressful. So tune into the thinking as a flow. Soften your attention around the topics and your reactions to them, and instead feel the movement of thinking. Racing, circling, sparkling, grinding, whatever. Let go of the topic. Tune into the flow. Unhook from the need to arrive at a conclusion. Right now, there is no conclusion. Also, put aside the irritation with thinking and the wish that it stop. Feel the energy of thinking and settle it on the breathing. It's like riding a horse or surfing a wave. Keep the breath energy and the thought energy in mind, letting them meet and move together. Okay. 
So I have one more thing. I'd kind of like to, to, to close with a poem, and I was looking for poems and not having any luck to say what I wanted to say. So what I did was stumble across a phrase by a man who is a poet. Uh, he's a Christian minister. His name is Christian Wyman. And I, I, he really knows his way around a line. I really appreciate the way he writes and his spiritual bent in his writing. So, so I ran across this in an article about farming. So who knows? This is it. Nature poets can't walk across the backyard without tripping over an epiphany. Nature poets can't walk across the backyard without tripping over an epiphany. That seemed to me to be exactly what this gathering the thinking is about. If we're just there, in the natural space of the moment, we can't help but trip over an insight, an understanding, a grasping, a release. So let that be your mantra. Nature poets can't walk across the backyard without tripping over an epiphany. May you trip over many epiphanies as you go through your day. Thank you for being here. So, does anybody have any comments or uh, other ideas about this? You've been frantically thinking? Yes. I really like the first group, the Haydn one, because I think it was just enjoying the pure music. You didn't look so much at your movement and your energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, can we use the the microphone, please? Because we, I think, we're recording it. But, but your comment was that that you enjoyed the Haydn piece. Now, because. There, it wasn't distracted by all the yes. things that were happening. And I can appreciate that. Uh, I had my, my six- and eight-year-old grandsons with me, and I was hoping for a performance to keep them engaged. <laughs> so I was listening to the music. As I said, it was beautiful. It was beautiful music, but the experience was quite different. And the fidgety sons, his grandsons, meant that we left after Paul Groves did the after the singing part, because it was beautiful, but was not going to keep six and eight-year-old boys engaged. <laughs> but you're right, it was, it was beautiful. And, and I have attended concerts where that very same, why are those people kicking around doing all of this? Why can't they just play the music? Depending on the context and the conditions, we have totally different experiences. Thank you. Thank you for that. Anything else? Yeah, we have one over here. See if I can phrase this. <laughs> um, I had a recent experience with a friend with a terminal diagnosis of cancer. And um, she said some things that felt passive-aggressive to me, like she was in her angry face. And um, 
I took it really, really personally, right? And it was helpful to talk the story out. There was a story, a big story, with more than one person I needed to, to get the story and that it wasn't about me and all of that. Yes. And then, so that helped me, I guess, see or have thoughtful reflection, right? I mean, I was meditating too, but... Um, and then, as that softened, then I became... Two people with terminal diagnosis. So then I became aware of, after I saw this other person, who's not as close a daily friend, I felt shame afterwards seeing her. And then I talked to the close friend and I felt that it's like just really jittery and honest. It took a while to figure out. I mean, I knew there was anguish, right? Yes. I, that's normal. But the shame. And so then I had to talk. But, oh, the shift was between the figuring out the first thing. This was the important shift. I went, oh, for this whole process, because I haven't done this before in this way, to be a witness of my friends dying, I need to really be a witness to myself and what's going on with me and step back a little bit and notice and not get. So then I started noticing. So then I noticed the agitation and shame after seeing the one and then after talking to the other, really, again, just, you know, but again, talking it through helped. But I noticed it's like I could witness it. I wasn't running away from it. I wasn't making it about her. And there was still the angry tone, you know, but I, it wasn't making it about her. I was like, what's going on, right? So, and then I could, then I finally figured it out, which is that I feel guilty, one, because I'm surviving, and two, because I can't do anything about it, <laughs> right? right? It's my fault. Like yes, a little yes. kid says, it's my fault. And I have to fix it. So, so it's a combination. I guess what I'm asking about, and maybe that's thoughtful reflection is what you're talking about, because it's a combination of both the just witnessing and watching it roll by, but also being able to see or have the insight or the epiphany about what's, what's driving it. That understanding still feels really important. So that's what I'm trying to articulate and ask a little bit about. Right? It sounds beautiful. That sounds beautiful. Yeah. You know, we um, when when confronted with someone else's tragedy, we are very often uh, driven to say the right thing, to express in some way our concern, and it is received in a way that is completely not our intention. Because it's, and there are lots of reasons that that happens. One of which is the person who is the unfortunate person that you want to relieve the pressure from only sees you as someone who really doesn't get the fact that they are in great pain. <laughs> and so, so whether you experience that or not, their view of you as the healthy person who's there trying to fix it, with they're in a space of, this is not fixable, by the way, 
is a total mismatch. It's just a mismatch. And there were books written on uh, how to speak with someone who is dying. Because it it is so easy to step in the doo-doo. So easy. But also what I, I liked was uh, what I greatly appreciated was your ability to see to see and recognize that what you were experiencing was also what you were experiencing and not just experiencing the other person. So there is a lot of work on the subject of empathy. And in empathy, sometimes we uh, notice what the other person is feeling and that evokes in us a response. There is also a feeling, an aspect of empathy where we take on their feeling and and then we experience whatever they're experiencing. That's usually uh, not a healthy thing to do. There's understanding that comes from that, but it falls short of actually being able to give a compassionate response. And the other thing that can happen with empathy is that it, in fact, evokes this compassionate response in us. And what's interesting is the very evocation of that compassionate response can shine through when you say nothing at all. Can just be there. Just as we are there with our thoughts, we are there with their suffering, and our suffering. And that's what I heard you speaking to and, and experiencing was, what is it like to be there with your suffering and my suffering? And how do I keep them from becoming conflated or confused? <clears throat> um. And we have to sit with that confusion also. There, there is confusion here. There is uncertainty here. And what we do is develop our capacity to be with uncertainty and discomfort. Right. And that was one of the shifts in, in this awareness while I was just, you know, in a reverie in the hot tub. That was, it was like, oh, th- this is my journey too. Just, I had my yes. own words, but that's, that's my journey is this is a spiritual opportunity, whatever, and bring mindfulness and all of that to this experience. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Thank you for that. Anybody else? Well, go trip over some epiphanies. Thank you. Have a great day.